0: We are live in St. Louis. You've got questions, we've got answers. Phone lines are open. Thanks for joining us today on the Line of Fire, Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. (laughs) If you are watching on YouTube or on Facebook, you will see that we are audio only, everyone listening on radio, podcast, everything the same as always. Same phone number, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. The earlier you call in the broadcast, the better chance we have of getting to your questions. And again, anything in any way relevant to the Line of Fire broadcast, anything related to Bible, theology, culture, Israel, politics, anything relates to any guest we've had on, or you've anything you've heard me say, preach, write, teach, that's all fair game, 866-348-7884. Before going to the phones, I wanted to read a testimony. It was posted about 12 days ago on the Ask Astar- page, and it it really blessed me, and I've been meaning to read it, to share it with others, but a gentleman named Jonathan posted this, I highly recommend Dr. Michael, I think he has solid biblical doctrine, he's a great preacher of God's grace and mercy, I love all his line of fire YouTube broadcasts, and even his books are my favorite deep biblical insight, I don't care what people say about him, he's a good teacher of the word, and this is the part that, that so blessed me. He said, I just lost everything, my family and home. So, listening to Dr. Brown when I don't feel like I can go on anymore really helps. He is so encouraging. Bless you, Dr. Brown, and thank you so much. You help people like me who enjoy your online fellowship and teaching. You help me come back to faith when my faith was almost dead. Jonathan, if you are listening right now, I have been God's hand of grace to you. It is God working through me as he works through each of us as we yield ourselves up to him. And whatever you've received from me, it's because of God's love and God's goodness and care for you. So be strong, my brother. And thank you others listening and viewing that you're on the edge and you're struggling and, and you feel like falling off. Hey, remember, it's not just you holding on to God. It's God holding on to you. He's faithful. Lean on him. Many a time I've told them, Lord, I'm in over my head. Many a time I've told them, Lord, this is too big. Your strength manifests in my weakness, and I learned to rely on his grace and his goodness more than on my determination and my will. 866-34-TRUTH. We start in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Chuck, welcome to the line of fire.
2: Hey, how you doing today, uh, Dr. Brown?
0: Doing well, thank you, sir.
2: Awesome, man. I had uh, like a two-part question um, regarding the prophet Elijah. I was wondering in 2 Kings, when it speaks of him being taken up um, by a whirlwind, is Scripture describing him being taken from the earth or just translated to another area? Because I was kind of doing some research and saw where He had wrote a letter to a king where he in a, I guess, a land or a country that he wasn't present in. And this was, I'm guessing, after him being taken in the world. And then the second question is um, how you would translate the um, word, I can't pronounce it, it's O R D I M. It's in First Kings when it uh, speaks about him being fed by the raven. You just, you just cut out there. Um, saying, try to
0: give me that word again. Could you give me that word again?
2: Um, so I guess the word, the Hebrew word, O-R-D-I-M, b i m, translated as ravens. I'm seeing that some people are saying that it uh, could be translated as Arabs, and I was wanting to see what your take on that was. And that's that's all I have, sir.
0: Uh, okay, great. Yeah. So Chuck, the the first question, it's definitely taken that he is being to heaven that. <laughs> He is being taken away from the earth, that uh, Elisha is told by the the other prophets, hey, you know, maybe he's been moved somewhere. You know, the Spirit put him here or put him there, so they search and search and can't find him. So that was not the case. He was translated up into God's presence. That's why it's angelic beings coming down, the chariots of fire, the whirlwind, that that whole thing. That's why he does not physically die. That's one thing. As for the letter, it's a mystery. Uh, yeah it, it comes later uh, many many years after his death so there there are only two possibilities. One is that uh, he wrote a letter prophetically you know it would be like someone writing a letter in the uh, in the 1800s addressing President Ronald Reagan so it would be a supernatural prophetic gift that operated or, that someone, another prophet, was inspired to to write this, and God basically said, "You're writing on behalf of Elijah." Uh, otherwise, it's mysterious. Uh, and, and yes, scholars do wonder about it, but there it is. Like boom, just direct. So no, he he was not just living somewhere else for for many, many, many years afterwards. Uh, as for the second question, the uh, you have similar letters involved in terms of orave and arav, but they're two completely different words. Uh, just like in English, uh, if, if you take the s- same consonants but change letters, okay, bank versus bonk, right? You have the B and the N and the K, but different vowels, so different words uh, involved there. Hey, Chuck, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Eight six six three four truth we go to Denver, Colorado. Manny, welcome to the line of fire.
3: Dr. Brown, shalom. Shalom. Hey, um, I have a question for you on 1 Corinthians seven, seven. And um mm-hmm. it's the second sentence which says that each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And I'm not sure if that's yep. referring broadly to, you know, the fact that everybody has their own gift grace from God, or if it's referring specifically to the context of chapter 7, which is saying um, the gift of, you know, singleness or marriage. And I just wanted to know what you think.
0: Yeah, in context, it's speaking to about singleness and marriage, but it's making a universally true statement to back that up. So when he's okay. talking about not marrying, and he says in verse Seven seven a, the first half. I wish that all of you were as I am, but seven seven B, each of you has your own gift from God, one has this gift, another has that. Jesus references in this as well as Matthew nineteen, that it's not given to everyone not to marry. That's the exceptional gifting. At the same time, Paul is emphatic in his other letters that every member of the body is gifted in one way or another. So in this case, He's speaking in the context of marriage and singleness, but in the context of giftedness, uh, you know, for example, in the 12th chapter, he talks about how the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each member of the body, but for a different purpose. Or in Romans 12, yep. how the body has many different members, each one unique, and each of you has a specific gift. So he's making a generally true statement, but with specific reference there to the marital issue.
3: Okay, that's awesome. I, I was uh, just really curious, and um, that makes me pretty happy as well, because I like to think everybody's unique, and that was a pretty important verse to me, and so I just um, was caught a little off guard that it was referring to possibly only two things, but um, thank you very much for your help. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. And, and Manny, as far as our uniqueness, I've said for many years that we are not the corporate blob of Christ, but the corporate body, and the body is so unique and so distinctive, and each part of the body down to micro things within our bodies that, that science is only discovering the functions of over the centuries, uh, we are extraordinarily carefully made, uniquely made, beautifully made, and it's the same with within the body. It's not to, oh, that guy's the preacher, and we're the congregants, or this one's the worship leader, and we just go to church. or No, each one has a distinct role distinct purpose, distinct calling, and if we'll not compare ourselves to someone else, but rather yield our lives wholly to God and say, Lord, your will be done in my life. Your purpose, your plan, you've uniquely fashioned and made me. Your will be done. Then we'll find great fulfillment in obeying him. Thank you, sir, for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Pensacola, Florida. Steve, you're on the line of fire
4: hey dr brown hey how you doing sir
0: hello doing very well thanks can
4: you hear me Oh, okay yes yeah, I, I have can. a question uh, dr brown uh you're uh what i'm running into nowadays is with some people in the in the one that's movement who uh heard uh they're trying to find the writing of god's law on people's hearts by the ten commandments uh being the only laws that god's referring to in jeremiah and uh, and with that, mm-hmm. certain groups that I should say, not the, not the entire movement, but uh, and what they're the ones I'm encountering are trying to force the Sabbath on believers because it's one of the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, let, let me ask this: a, If you're a, dealing
0: with oneness, with, oneness, with oneness Pentecostals, are, are they yeah. talking about Saturday Sabbath or Sunday?
4: Sa- uh, Saturday. And uh, I hadn't seen it before because my family was in that group, but now it's just like something I've been seeing. It's new. They didn't have certain elements uh, of the church didn't have before.
0: Yeah, I I had a discussion with a gentleman uh, just yesterday on the line of fire, and he was asking, are the Ten Commandments separate from the rest of the law, and are the Ten Commandments binding for all believers in the church? And historically— Many Christians would say yes, but they made the error of thinking that God had transferred the Sabbath to Sunday, and that therefore Sunday worship was mandatory, or Sunday Sabbath keeping was mandatory. So my perspective is this. Although you can make a case for the Sabbath going back to creation, when God sanctifies the seventh day, it doesn't say that he sanctified it for the whole human race, or called the whole human race to observe it, but let's say you, you want to argue from that, Right. What we know is by the time you get to Exodus 16, that the institution of the Sabbath is something new for the Israelites fresh out of bondage in Egypt. They certainly were not keeping a Seventh-day Sabbath when they're in Egypt. And then when it's given as one of the Ten Commandments, it's given as a sign to keep Israel from the rest of the nations. Uh, That's reiterated in, in the book of Ezekiel as well. So obviously the rest of the world... Was not observing this. In fact, scholars even debate where the idea of a seventh day Sabbath came from because you don't have it uh, in the ancient world. And there's nothing logical about it. It's one thing to have a lunar month, you know, the month coincides with the cycle of the moon, and then to have a solar year. Uh, but where do we get seventh day Sabbath from? Uniquely given by God. All right, we'll finish on the other side of the break. Stay right there.
1: It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866 34 Truth. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to The
0: Line of Fire. Michael Brown here, 866 34 Truth, coming away live from St. Louis, friends, ministering through this weekend. Grace Church in uh, in Maryland Heights, right outside of St. Louis. A Friday night, I believe, is young adults' meeting. Maybe another location. Not sure. You can check my itinerary. Saturday morning, men's breakfast, and then sun- Saturday night, and two Sunday morning services for every object at each place. All right. So, uh, Steve in Pensacola, back to you. Uh, the big argument will ultimately come down to Sabbath itself. In terms of the other Ten Commandments, we all agree that the other nine are reiterated in the New Testament as commands for everyone. But what about Sabbath? You could argue that in the future Millennial Kingdom, it looks like there'll be Seventh-day Sabbath observance. But the fact is, there is nothing in the New Testament that calls Gentile believers to observe the Seventh-day Sabbath or that mandates it or requires it. The emphasis is that we find rest in Jesus— and the Sabbath is a shadow, but the substance is in him, and therefore no one should be able to press you. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2 in terms of the observance of a Sabbath or or, or uh, a new moon or something like that. So in point of fact, it is uh, completely fine for a Christian to say, hey, God gave this for good reason, and I feel it's good and healthy to observe the seventh day as a Sabbath instead of the part to the Lord. Wonderful. Great. And many Messianic Jewish congregations worship on Shabbat, on Sabbath, uh, as, as part of solidarity with the Jewish community and believing that honors the Lord. But there is clearly no New Testament command to do that. And you cannot separate the Ten Commandments from the rest of the law. If you're going to say that is mandatory, then you're going to have to say other aspects of the law are also mandatory. And then basically you put everyone back under the Sinai Covenant instead of under the New and better covenant that God has made. The Sinai Covenant served its divine purpose, and it brought us to the Messiah, brought the whole world under the guilt of sin, showed us our need for a Redeemer, and then brought, uh, brought us as a schoolmaster, as a pedagogue, to the Messiah. Now that we're in the Messiah, there is a change, and that change has been brought about through a new and better covenant. And there's no hint in Jeremiah 31-34 to that it's just speaking about Ten Commandments there. There's no hint about that at all. Rather, what is being spoken of there is God's teaching being put in our hearts, and now we see what that is through the New Testament writings.
4: Gotcha. Okay, good deal. Thank you.
0: Yeah, and I I would just ask to someone, hey, just show me in the New Testament where it singles out the Ten Commandments, and where it singles out the Sabbath Commandment, and where it makes that binding for all New Testament believers. Uh, Also, just the situation in Rome is very interesting. Believers in Rome started out as Jews, like in the early church would have been the norm. They started out as Jewish followers of Jesus with a minority of Gentiles. Then there was an edict from the emperor uh, early on in the community's life, about a decade or less into the community's life, where they were scattered. Uh, Jews were exiled from Rome and that included Jewish followers of Jesus. When they came back, Uh, Some years later, now the Jews were a minority in the Gentile community of Rome in terms of the church. So how do you relate? What do you do? Different customs, days, holy days. And that's part of what Paul is addressing in Romans 14, about differences in observing days. Some of it comes back to that conflict, that challenge with Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in the same spiritual family. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to our friend Jerichiah in Gerald, Texas. Welcome to the line of fire.
3: Can you hear me, Dr. Brown?
0: Yeah, I can. Go Hello. ahead. Shalom. Yeah, I can barely hear you. I tell you what, Danny, why don't you see what's uh, what's up with that call and if we can get clearly connected with Jerichiah. Uh, let's go to Tesla in Fremont, Nebraska. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
5: Hey, Doctor Michael Brown. My um, name's Tesla. Um, I was just wondering um, what your perspective is on the prophecies made by David Wilkerson um, from the vision he had and Mm -hmm. the prophecies made by Kim Clement. How do you reconcile both of them? And David Wilkerson prophesied more about the judgment coming to America, and Kim Clement talked about the revival coming to America. But both of them were true prophets of God, I believe. Both of them um, had... Both of them had accurate prophecies come to pass. So I was just wondering your intake on that.
0: Yes, it's it's a very good question. And if we believe that God still speaks prophetically today, we need to take these things seriously. So, number one, let's go through all the possibilities. The possibilities would be that neither one was really speaking from the Lord, Another possibility would be that one was speaking from the Lord, the other was not. Another possibility would be they both were speaking from the Lord, and it will just take time to show that. And another possibility would be that one or both of the prophecies were conditional. So how do we sort these out? I mean, those are the initial four possibilities that would come up in my mind. All right, so I, I would say first that when you go back to David Wilkerson's The Vision, there is no question that there are many things he spoke there that have come to pass. I, I went and looked yeah. back at it, oh, within the last couple of months. And, and it, was, it, was really, it was really striking. It was striking to see how much he had spoken back then. So you're talking, what was it, the early 80s uh, has come to pass. On the other hand, if you read some of his <laughs> books like Set the Trumpet to Thy Mouth and others, you would have had the idea that judgment was coming in a more imminent way on America, that we were going to have a complete financial collapse. And in fact, when the stock markets collapsed a few decades back, David Wilkerson, the day before, on a Sunday night, was preaching at Times Square Church and told everyone, if you want to see history made, be at Wall Street tomorrow. And he was there shouting warnings or speaking as everything went crazy. And there was a massive stock market collapse. He had he had said it the day before that it was going to happen. Then a couple of years later, something similar happened. He he spoke similarly, but it but it didn't happen the same way. So is that human fallibility? I mean, we have to factor all these things in. My take is this: I know that Kim Clement had the the Trump prophecy uh, earlier on, and. Uh, That is one that everyone's pointing to, so we shall see in terms of that, will he be elected a second term? Will he emerge from the White House as a praying man, going in as a non-praying man, and emerge as a praying man? But everything has to be tested, first tested by the word, and and then tested by accuracy. And neither prophecy mentioned conditionality, but almost always in the Bible, the principle (laughs) is, and it's laid out in Jeremiah chapter 18 that the principle is that if God judgment and the people repent that he has promised to judge, that instead of bringing judgment, he'll bring blessing. And if he promises blessing and they turn and do evil, then instead of bringing blessing, he will bring judgment. So is it possible that David Wilkerson's prophecies are true but conditional? And the same with Kim Clements. Are they true but traditional? Uh, conditional, You say, well, then what's the... Well, it would be to warn and to give promise and hope. It's possible that both are true. And I, I'm not just trying to make sense of things here. I'm just honestly looking at it. Because I look always at these dual possibilities of revival and judgment. And I expect both of them on a certain level. And sometimes judgment precedes revival. Sometimes judgment follows revival sometimes revival stops judgment from coming so if i was seeking to put this together humbly before the lord i uh, without examining every line of, of the prophecies for accuracy and and historical fulfillment what i would say tesla is i am praying with urgency for revival believing that god can still stir america bring us to our knees and send the greatest outpouring we've ever seen. But if not, judgment is at the door, and judgment may be at the door anyway, and the best we can do is stall it. So anyone just saying, don't worry, revival's coming, everything's gonna be good, no, that's superficial, I reject that. Anyone saying it's over, it's too late, you can't repent, it's too late for revival, I reject that. So I I live with this great sense of anticipation, but with this sense of, of deep concern at the same time. So both words could be true depending on whether we repent and humble ourselves or whether we go on in our arrogance and pride. And then over time, we shall see, we'll be able to evaluate even more clearly what was a true prophetic word and what was not. Hey, thank you for a, a very important question. Eight six six three four truth is the number to call. Hey, friends, do you get my emails? We have a very announcement that will be going out early next week about my next book, one of the most fascinating books I believe I've ever written. I believe it's going to be a real page-turner for you and a great tool to give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. We're going to be announcing that on Monday. So if you're not getting my emails right now, sign up because we'll have a special offer for uh, pre-order signed autographed, uh, signed and numbered copies, excuse me. So make sure you get our emails. Go to AskDrBrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Go there and then just sign up for the emails. The moment you do, you'll also get a really neat free ebook. Yeah, real eye-opening ebook. And then updates, articles, resources, special things, and words of encouragement. Sign up today. we right back with you in a momentarily.
1: It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Thanks for joining us on the line of fire coming away live from St. Louis. This is Michael Brown. You've got questions. We've got answers. All right. So Jerichia in Gerald, Texas. Hopefully our connection is good now. Go ahead. Yes. Hello. All right. Well, we gave it a shot twice. Actually. Okay, let's go to Jared in Lexington, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
6: Hey, how's it going, Michael Brown? Um, Very well, thank you. I, would, uh, I wanted to talk about um, the commandments and the Torah as a whole. First, I want to say I don't advocate a works-based salvation at all. Jesus Christ is the only method of salvation. What I mm-hmm. do want to say is in First John chapter 3, verse 4, it states that sin is the transgression of the law. Also, in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says that um, the knowledge of sin is by the law. So what I would submit is that we are not saved by the law, but if we are to be sinless as Jesus was, then should we not also try to uh, uphold the law, the commandments in every aspect, Except, of course, of the um, sacrifices, which is outlined, I believe, in Hebrews chapter 8, how Jesus was— Well, well, but but hang on.
0: Why do you say say accept? In other words, if—
6: Because the sacrifices were added due to transgressions because of uh, the— Right, uh, but that's part—there are
0: commandments. There are commandments to offer sacrifices. So who exempted you from that commandment?
6: The sacrifices for sin is what I'm referring to as... Um, right,
0: right, right. But I'm saying, added. since it was required by the law, that's part of the Torah. Paul's just yes. explaining why these... But it's part of the... Or Hebrews is explaining, but it's part of the Torah. So who gave you the right to not offer animal sacrifices? If you said that sin is transgressing the law, we should keep all the commandments. Who told you not to keep that commandment?
6: It's not that we were not told to keep the commandment. Jesus was our sacrifice. He is the propitiation
7: of our ah, sin. Okay, so Therefore, So
0: there are many things right, he fulfills all righteousness. He fulfills the yes. law and the pro- that okay, so you're saying that many, many passages in the Torah no longer apply to us, correct?
6: What because I am saying is so let's take um
0: well, here, I'll, I'll give you an Sabbath, example. What we've it's a commandment. About. Okay. okay. If you don't observe the seventh-day Sabbath, you're put to death, according to the Torah. So you want to advocate that?
6: I am advocating that we would keep it. The punishment, um, what is it in Galatians, he often Paul often talks about um, the uh, the curse of the law, being under the law. If you are under the law or under the right, curse but, of but, the but, law— ha- But hang on, you hang not... on.
0: So you should, we shouldn't keep the death penalty, even though that's a command in the Torah.
6: The death penalty, that was paid for by Christ, our uh, forgiveness you don't, okay, of sin. Okay,
0: a, a witch should be burned. Still burn witches.
6: Mm, I would say no, that is not our place. Uh, oh, okay. Not, if you, If you continue. have a
0: disobedient and rebellious teenager that will not repent, should you stone that one to death?
6: No, that is not our I would not say that is. Oh, okay. So our, Jared,
0: you are you are already throwing out dozens and dozens and dozens of Torah laws. Okay. You, you to be consistent, you would have to live ways radically differently than what you live. What you need to do is realize we are not under the Sinai Covenant. And when, when God is speaking of you... sin is transgress Jared, can I finish? We're not yeah, under the ahead. Sinai Covenant. We're under, we're under a new and better covenant. And to find out how you need to live as a follower of Jesus, read the New Testament. It lays it out plainly.
6: Okay, um, as I was saying, then how do you explain um, those passages that I mentioned that say that, you know, sin is transgression of the law?
0: It's It's not talking about ceremonial law. Otherwise, you're in sin every second of every day. You live in 24-7 sin every single day because you are in a ritually impure state, according to the ceremonial law. So, so Jared, exactly. look, here, we... here, so, so, so here's the deal, sir. The Torah was given to reveal sin, to show us our need for a Redeemer, to, to give us the concept of substitution, so that we would now recognize our need for the Messiah, understand who he was, for the Jewish people, and then for the Jewish people to make it known to the world. Now we have been given the ability by grace to live according to God's moral law and to follow the commandments that He's laid out in the New Testament. If you want to advocate that you are supposed to live by everything written in Torah, you'll find yourself a hypocrite 24/7. Just in our little conversation, oh, yeah, I agree with that. No, not that. You don't have the right to do it. Go talk to an ultra-orthodox Jew about how they live according to Torah. And then you find out about 90% of things you do are off limits, okay, according to Torah, as, as they would understand it. So the bottom line is you're going in the wrong direction. The commandments that we need to emphasize are those which are laid out in the New Testament, and sin being transgression of the law, is talking about God's moral standards there. It's not talking about Every ceremonial detail, or if you're not off, if, if you didn't go through ritual purification, or if your wife didn't after her monthly period, it's not talking about that, sir. I'm trying to help. I mean, I've had this discussion endlessly. And we can only do it so much on the air, but I'm trying to help, sir. So please drink these things in. 866 34 Truth. Let us go to Alex in Northern California. Welcome to the line of fire.
8: Thank you, Dr. Brown. Um, basically, I have a general question for you and uh, give you a little background. Uh, so my parents uh, escaped uh, Ukraine, uh, Eastern uh, Europe uh, during World War II um, with persecution from the communists, Nazis, etc. And uh, my grandfather was an a Eastern Rite Byzantine uh, priest. And um, okay. my question is, so basically I was like raised to both Latin tradition and Ukrainian, uh, Eastern Rite, and, um, and then uh, you know Jesuit college, et cetera. Then I, um, for like 20, 30 years of my life, I've uh, looked into uh, uh, Protestant, uh, Pentecostal, um, and I got a lot of great things out there, like with reading the Bible, et cetera, but I find as I'm getting older kind of missing the traditions of what I was raised in. And, uh, you know, my parents, uh, you know, taught me the fear of God, et cetera. Um, You know, and it's just basically like salvation, what Europeans are, the salvations, maybe the theology. And also I find like some of the traditions, it seems like they mimic uh, Eastern, like the Eastern Rite or Orthodox sort of mimic. It it might be, to my perspective, like uh, Old Testament um, temple kind of practices uh, what is your opinion? Can people find of the theology, and can people find salvation within that um, branch?
0: Yeah, So, as as I understand, uh, Eastern rites, uh, even just looking at online definition, Eastern rite churches make manifest the pluralistic composition of the Roman Catholic tradition. So, Eastern Catholic rites per- permit a married clergy, the immediate admission of baptized infants, etc. So, you you got a, a bit of a of a mixture there. Here's, here's what I would say, yes. sir, because this is a journey that you're going to be on between you and God. I would read through the New Testament over and over this year. Finish it, read it again, finish it, read it again, and ask yourself, what are the fundamentals? What are the non-negotiables? What are the things that I must believe and must adhere to and must live out to be a true follower of Jesus? That's number one. Then number two, look at the description of the church in the New Testament, obviously with warts and blemishes, but look at the life of the Spirit, the importance of the presence and work of the Spirit. Look at what seemed to be reflected as important in, in services, in, in <clears throat> public worship. You know, Look for those things. And then look for the marks of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, how we are to live, what should be reflected in our lives. And then I would look for community that most seems to be in harmony uh, for me I'm in I am much more at home in a more of a free-flowing service and a service where the Holy Spirit can can move and work and speak as opposed to a more traditional service or liturgical service but I certainly understand that there there would have been liturgy in certain parts of the early church especially in certain Jewish settings that certain things that I'm not as at home with, others will be more at home with, and vice versa. But the non-negotiables, that's what's the big thing to me, in terms of the fundamental beliefs about who Jesus is, about what he did on the cross, about what it means to be his follower, about the working of the Spirit today, about the foundational nature of the Word of God, of what committed Christians look like and how they should live. Those are the big things to me. And ultimately, if there was a community of believers that loved the things of God, that loved the working of the Spirit, that were <clears throat> truly sold out for Jesus, living out the gospel, and their expression in services included a good amount of liturgy, and and it was either that or some Pentecostal church down the block that was loose on doctrine and and, and loose on commitment, <clears throat> I'd be more at home in the liturgical setting, but work out as you understand the word, what the most important non-negotiable fundamentals are, and then build out from there. And make sure it's not nostalgia that's pulling you back to some older memories. Make sure it's, it's truth content and spiritual content that's pulling you, not nostalgia. May the Lord guide you, sir. Thank you for asking the question. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Stephen in Los Angeles. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi. Hello.
7: Can you hear me? Yes.
0: Yes, I can.
7: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Go ahead. Uh, I've been studying Emmanuel Tove's book on textual criticism of the Hebrew Bible, and I'm curious about one of the observations he makes, uh, which is corroborated in the the footnotes of my Oxford English uh, the Jewish Study Bible, Oxford Edition. And it's in regards to a, what seems to be a significant textual variant in reference to Deuteronomy 32:8 and 32:43, which you're probably already yep. familiar with. Um, both mm-hmm. Tove and the Jewish Study Bible claim that in these instances, the Masoretic text contains unintelligible and illogical readings, and namely that in verse eight, the the name Israel stands in place of what originally said God or El. And in verse 43, the whole, you know, two whole lines were allegedly removed, replacing references to servants with sons, and nations uh, allegedly replaced uh, an original reference to heavens. Um, And supposedly these corrections, among others, were made by early editors of the so-called proto-Masoretic text in order to eliminate what may have been perceived as polytheistic imagery.
0: All right, stay stay right there, and we'll, we'll come back to the rest of your question on the other side of the break.
1: It's the line of fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, let's get
0: right back to the phone. So, Stephen, yeah, so you're reviewing some of the apparent textual issues or what's reflected in Septuagint or Dead Sea Scrolls variations from the Masoretic textual tradition. There are some quotes, say, from Deuteronomy 32, that the way it's quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews seems to reflect the Septuagint confirmed by Dead Sea Scrolls, etc. So, yeah, these are the types of things that textual scholars work through. Ah, uh, your specific questions then would be what
7: um, so yeah, apparently the the re, the replacements was you know replacing uh, uh, God with Israel and replacing sons with servant and replacing heavens with nation, and essentially you know taking a text that supposedly originally you know referred to to heaven, you know divine counsel you know imagery and, you know, sort of grounding it on earth. And and supposedly these corrections, among others, were made by early editors of the so-called proto-Masoretic text in order to eliminate what may have been perceived as polytheistic imagery. And uh, supposedly the original wording can be reconstructed from the Dead Sea Scrolls for Deuteronomy J and Q, respectively, and the Qumran Scrolls are close to the Septuagint, as you just mentioned, uh, at least in this instance. Um, So what are the implications of these textual variants in terms of not only the integrity of the biblical text, but, you know, the conclusions that scholars seem to be drawing from these. And, uh, you know, in this instance, it seems like the Masoretic text was corrupted. And, uh, but the Septuagint actually preserves a more original reading, yet our, most of our modern, modern Bibles seem to favor the Masoretic text whenever they can. Um, you know, how, right. how would you advise kind of working through the weeds of this issue?
0: Yeah, so, so first thing, recognize that we talk about the biblical text we're talking about our best understanding of the original manuscripts. So the Masoretic text is not the biblical text. It's just in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases closest to what we understand the original is. The same way with New Testament texts, we have an abundance uh, to sift through. And the question is which most accurately reflects the original reading and overall, in terms of major doctrinal issues, the the variants are, are very, very minor and very, very rare. So by the biblical text, we're looking at the larger complex of what's been preserved, including the Masoretic Textual Tradition, Include, and even there you have thousands of manuscripts that aren't all in perfect harmony. Uh, then you have the Septuagint, you have the various uh, other translations, be it Syriac, be it Latin, be it Aramaic, uh, and then you have manuscripts preserved and things like that. So you're, you're looking at the larger picture, and Textual criticism, so-called lower criticism, is going to put all these pieces together and do its best to come to conclusions. That's the first thing. The second thing is, ideologically, you have to ask why, if there was an attempt to change things, were not many, many other verses changed? Like Exodus fifteen nine? who is like you, O Lord, among the gods. Exodus 13, well, where God the, is going the, to bring... The
7: examples that Tov adduces are Psalm 82 and 1 Kings twenty two nineteen. You know, he, he, he simply right, exactly. points out so that still have the, changed right. here, it's, but it just wasn't changed everywhere.
0: Exactly. So the question is, why one place and not another? So that's a, that's a larger question that scholars then have to take into account. You also have the principle of what's called lectio difficilior, which is that the more difficult reading is the more likely. In other words, that a scribe will not go from... Clear to unclear, but from unclear to clear. In other words, well, that doesn't make sense. I think it's this is what it originally said, and they make that clarification. So why would the scribes, Masoretic or Proto-Masoretic scribes, change a clear text to something unclear? That becomes another issue. So you just have it. What, what you have to do is look at all the evidence, look at all the arguments, and then do your best to come to a conclusion. That's what scholars do. When you then look at, say, 10 major English translations today and you see where they go, then you look at commentaries, you say, okay, this seems to be the majority view, and either way, these are not life-essential doctrinal issues because we do know that there were considered other gods, but they were not God the way God is God. They were created beings, and they served in certain capacities, and God said, no, I rule over all of you. And, and then you cast down the corrupt angelic beings and things like that. Uh, do you ever use the, the NET Bible online?
7: Um, I do, yeah. Well, I have the yeah, full-note so, edition as well, which is
0: yeah, great. Okay, so what I'd encourage you to do is, is look at their assessment and their arguments verse after verse after verse. That's going to give you a good scholarly but balanced perspective, and it's also going to give you a perspective that's happy to deviate from certain evangelical norms uh, and and customs. In other words, it's not not afraid to say, well, we we differ here. Uh, So you have those full notes. But bottom line, Stephen, is when we're translating from the, uh, when we're looking at the text of the Hebrew Bible, overwhelmingly we are looking at what has been preserved in the Masoretic Textual Tradition. Sometimes you have to take the vowels away or the cantillation marks, the accents, take those away because those, those are put in place later but they reflect earlier traditions. You have to sift through that. Then you have to look at all the evidence that God has graciously preserved. And here and there, it's going to change our understanding of a verse or it's going to change our understanding of a word. But it's not going to change our overall understanding of all the fundamentals that God has laid out in Scripture. But you're looking at the arguments, you're understanding the issues. This is what we deal with as scholars and then we do our best to make decisions in a quality way in producing new translations. And the variations overall are rare and minor. Uh, if you have further questions as you're working this through, feel free to write to us as well. And some of our scholarly team will be happy to, to answer you in more specific depth on these questions. Thank you for the literate call and for your study. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to San Diego california david you are now on the line of fire
2: hey doc what's up man
0: hey man how you doing
2: hey hey so
8: this question will be a lot easier compared to that last guy it was a difficult guy but so what what was the difference between a jew and an israelite and then what did a jew call an israelite that wasn't a jew like what was the term for that
0: uh, yeah, I, actually, this is a pretty good question, too. The last one was excellent. This is, a, this is a simpler, but deep as well. Okay, originally okay. an Israelite was any of the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? So if you were from the tribe okay. of Judah, if you were from the tribe of Levi, if you were from the tribe of Manasseh, you're an Israelite. Um, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, and largely scattered, uh, many of them individuals now come and become part of the, the kingdom of Judah, and now, with the restoration of the Jewish people, or the, the, the kingdom of Judah is exiled by the Babylonians, with the restoration of the exile, they then come under Persians as the province of Yehud, okay? So, a, someone who lived there, or someone who's from the tribe of Judah, would be a Yehudi, which is now a Jew. So, originally, it would have referred specifically to a Judean, to someone of the tribe of Judah, but now it referred more broadly <clears throat> to all the Israelite people. Uh, all the 12 tribes were represented within this concept of Jew. But you can even see, like in, in the books of Nehemiah or Jeremiah, that the term Jew is used to single out a certain group of people, Judeans, separate from the rest of the Israelites. So it'll actually talk about the Jews and they're a separate category. But by the time of the New Testament, speaking of Israelites, speaking of Jews, is basically synonymous. And if you want to be specific, you could say I'm of the tribe of Benjamin like Paul does. But he would identify both as an Israelite and both as a Jew because the terms have now been merged together. So hopefully that is helpful. And I'm going to try to grab one more call if I can. Let's see. Oh, All right, David in Dallas, we are short on time. Dive right in with your question, please.
6: Okay, Dr. Brown, Acts 4.18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all in the name of Yeshua. Philippians uh, 2.10, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. Um, Acts 5.40, uh, they agreed with him, summoning the, emissary, the emissaries, they beat them, and commanded them not to speak in the name of Yeshua, and let them go. So what we... Oh, hang here, on, yeah, so you're,
0: you're, your question... Just because of time's okay, sake, so here, I'm sorry.
6: Okay. Just, here, my, my question is, is, okay, so the the name of Yeshua, is that the right name that we should be using? Because we see all these different variations. But you're not,
0: you're not, of, but you, that name never existed, the name you're using. That's that's the, the English way the of Yeshua saying it in existed. Hebrew. It's actually, no, it's actually Yeshua with an I in at the end that you'd be unable to pronounce because you didn't grow up with it. The point of the matter is, that you're not pronouncing it the way it was originally pronounced. If you were speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, yes, Yeshua. If you were speaking English, Jesus. If you're speaking Italian, Jesu. If you're speaking Spanish, Jesus. That's the name. It is the same name, the one and only name that speaks of the person. The pronunciation is not the issue. Because if I say Jesus to an Italian, it's like, who's that? If I say Jesu to a Spanish speaker, who's that? If I say Yeshua to a Chinese speaker, who's that? So it is his name, the one and only name by which we may be saved, however we pronounce it. All the verses you read don't say Yeshua, they say Yesus, because those are all in Greek as we have it. So did Paul get it wrong? Because he said, every knee will bow to the name of Jesus? He didn't say Yeshua. He said Jesus. That's how he wrote it in Greek to the Philippians. That's how Luke wrote it in Acts. So it is the name that we, by which we pronounce it in our language, speaking of that person who alone is the Savior. All right, friends, join me in St. Louis this weekend. Check my itinerary at sdrbrown.org. God bless.